All right, let's talk about Act Two of Tom Stoppard's Arcadia. Uh, we begin with Bernard delivering his lecture on this amazing historical discovery he's made that the reason that Lord Byron had to leave England was that he had killed Chatter in a duel. Now, among other things, this is a very clever thing to do after an act break because you get to remind the audience and kind of catch them up on where we are in the story. Uh, now, Hannah comes in and kind of uh, interrupts, and look right in the middle of page 2918, Bernard is reading from the game book to prove that Byron was at Sidley Park on this day. But on the 10th, he was at Sidley Park, as attested by the game book preserved there. April 10th, 1809, forenoon. High cloud, dry, and sun between times. Wind, southeasterly. Self, Augustus, Lord Byron. Fourteen pigeons, one hare, Lord B. But as we know, the drama of life and death at Sidley Park was not about pigeons, but about sex and literature. And Valentine says, unless you were the pigeon... I don't have to do this. I'm paying you a compliment. Ignore him, Bernard. Go on. Get to the duel. Hannah's not even paying attention. Yes, I am. It's all going in. I work with the radio on. Oh, thanks. Is there much more? Hannah? No, it's fascinating. I just wondered how much more there was. I I need to ask Valentine about this letter. Sorry, Bernard. Go on. This will keep. Yes. Sorry, Bernard. Please, Bernard. Where was I? Valentine says, pigeons. Chloe says, sex. Hannah says, literature. And Bernard says, life and death, right. Now, notice that each of them picks up on something different. Valentine picks up on the pigeons. Well, he's a biologist. He studies the grouse. Uh, Chloe picks up on sex. Well, she's got a crush on Bernard, as we will find out. Uh, uh, Hannah is all about literature. Uh, Notice that the same pattern happens again at another um, interruption. Uh, In the middle of uh, 2919, Bernard says, Where was I? Valentine. Game book. Chloe. Eros. Hannah. Borrowed. Right. Uh, Borrowed from Septimus Hodge. Uh, Now, again, Valentine thinks about the game book. Chloe is thinking about Eros, about sex, about love. Hannah is thinking about the book, the piece of literature that was borrowed. Uh, just, I mean, the the characters are so well drawn that even in those little interjections, you, you get a sense of what's important to them, what their point of view is. Uh, they're all very uh, quickly and vividly drawn characters. But Hannah keeps bringing up some very logical objections to this whole theory. Uh, at the top of 2920. Uh, Why is there nothing in Byron's letters about the Piccadilly reviews? Exactly, because he killed the author. But the first one, the Maid of Turkey, was the year before. Was he clairvoyant? Letters get lost, Chloe says, and Bernard says, thank you, exactly. There is a platonic letter which confirms everything but lost but eradicable, like Radio waves rippling through the universe for all eternity. My dear Hodge, here I am in Albania, and you're the only person in the whole world who knows why. Poor C. I never wished him any harm, except in the Piccadilly, of course. It was the woman who bade me uh, eat, dear Hodge. 
what was a, a, a tragic that what a tragic business. But thank God it ended well for poetry. Yours ever B. P.S. Burn this. So that's his imaginary letter that would you know wrap up all the loose ends of his theory. Uh, again, a platonic letter, uh, kind of the idea of a letter, but uh, it, it exists, but it you know it didn't survive. It was burned, like the in the Library of Alexandria, all the great books were uh, burned. And Anna comes out and tells him, it, well, she says, bollocks, uh, you've left out everything which doesn't fit. Byron had been banging on for months about leaving England. There's a letter in February. Uh, so she can bring up a lot of reasons why this theory just doesn't make sense. Bernard says that, uh, actually, uh, Bernard, as a scientist, your theory is incomplete. But I'm not a scientist. No, as a scientist, uh, I have yet to hear a proper argument. And Hannah says, no, nobody would kill a man and then pan his book. I mean... Not in that order. So he must have borrowed the book, written the review, posted it, seduced Mrs. Chatter, fought a duel, and departed all in the space of two or three days. Who would do that? Byron. Well, of course, Byron, it, it, certainly his, his image was as a guy like that. He was a uh, quite a, a, a character, as you, I hope, remember from our discussion of him earlier in the class. But Valentine, you know, as a scientist, has a very different take on all of this. He says near the bottom of 29.22, well, it's all trivial anyway. What is? Who wrote what, when? Trivial. Personalities. I'm sorry, did you say trivial? It's a technical term. Not where I come from, it isn't. The questions you're asking don't matter, you see. It's like arguing who got there first with the calculus. The English say Newton, the Germans say Leibniz, but it doesn't matter personalities. What matters is the calculus, scientific progress, knowledge. Really? Why? Why what? Why does scientific progress matter more than personalities? Is he serious? No, he's trivial, Bernard. And uh, Bernard is really, he's uh, um, uh, on a tear here and gives this speech uh, about uh, defending or actually accusing science, belittling science, is, but don't confuse progress with perfectibility. A great poet is always timely. A great philosopher is an urgent need. There's no rush for Isaac Newton. We were quite happy with Aristotle's cosmos. Personally, I preferred it. Fifty-five crystal spheres geared to God's crankshaft is my idea of a satisfying universe. I can't think of anything more trivial than the speed of light. Quarks, quasars, big bangs, black holes, who gives a shit? How did you people con us out of all the status, all that money? And why are you so pleased with yourselves? Now, Bernard is, is making, uh, this, this play is very much about uh, arts and sciences, the, the literary and historical points of view and the scientific points of view. And here, Bernard is coming very strongly in favor of the, the literary, historical, the, the academic side of things, not the scientific side of things. Now, uh, I think that the play, in some ways, may be on his side, but it's hard for the audience to be because we hate Bernard so much. He's such an awful person. Um, like, Look what he says in, uh, just a few lines down. If knowledge isn't self-knowledge, it isn't doing much, mate. Well, now, that's rich coming from Bernard. I mean, I don't think anyone is more lacking in self-knowledge than Bernard. 
uh, is the universe expanding? Is it contracting? Is it standing on one leg and saying, when Father painted the parlor, leave me out. I can expand my universe without you. She walks in beauty, like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies, and all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes. There you are. He wrote it after coming home from a party. With offensive politeness. What is it you're doing with Grouse, Valentine? I'd love to know. Now, this gets very personal and very belittling, but again, he is pointing out that there is something uh, timeless about the things that poets write about that is not true about science. It does At least it doesn't have the kind of immediate emotional resonance in people's lives that a great poem would have. And he's really touched a nerve because Valentine is having to give up his project because, as he says, there's too much noise. He's not able to um, uh, to, to make his equations work. And uh, even Bernard realizes he's been, you know, really kind of uh, gone beyond the bounds. And, and kind of Valentine storms out of the room uh, as he as he says, it's not so much fun when they're not professionals. He, he's used to this, these kinds of arguments in his own academic discipline, uh, and he couldn't, you know, couldn't turn that off. Again, because Bernard desperately lacks self knowledge. And then a look at this exchange between Bernard and Hannah in the middle of 2924. He says, why don't you come? Where? With me. To London? What for? What for? Oh, your lecture. No, no, bugger that. Sex. Oh, no, thanks. Bernard? You should try it. It's very underrated. Nothing against it. Yes, you have. You should let yourself go a bit. You might have written a better book, or at least the right book. <laughs> sex and literature. Literature and sex. Your conversation, left to itself, doesn't have many places to go, like two marbles rolling around a pudding basin. One of them is always sex. Ah, uh, well, yes, men all over. <laughs> no doubt. Einstein. Relativity and sex. Chippendale. Sex and furniture. Galileo. Did the earth move? What the hell is it with you people? Chaps sometimes wanted to marry me, and I don't know a worse bargain. Available sex against not being allowed to fart in bed. Notice that here again we're seeing these uh, uh, juxtaposition of the scientific and the, the personal or the sexual. And the wonderful thing, Galileo, did the earth move? Which is a great kind of you know, joke if you know that, of course, Galileo's whole theory was that the earth moved around the sun and was not the stationary center of the universe. Uh, but of course, it's also uh, the, the cliche that uh, after, after sex, did the earth move for you? Uh, so it combines both of those things. And we find out here that uh, Bernard and, and Chloe are having an affair. Uh, but uh, Bernard also has some information for uh, for Hannah about her hermit. Uh, there was a hermitage occupied by a lunatic since twenty years without uh, without discourse or companion, save for a pet tortoise, Plautus by name, which he suffers children to touch upon request. Uh, so here's a, another reference to the the Sidley hermit that she wants to write about. At the end of the scene. Hannah is reading through this. He died two score years and seven. That was uh, in 1834. So he was born 1787. So was the tutor. 
He says so in his, his letter to Lord Crome when he recommended himself for the job. Date of birth, 1787. The hermit was born in the same year as Septimus Hodge. Valentine asked, did Bernard uh, Mard bite you in the leg? Uh, he's suggesting, did, did, has he infected you with these crazy theories? He says, don't you see? I thought my hermit was a perfect symbol, an idiot in the, in the landscape. But this is better. The age of enlightenment banished into the romantic wilderness. The genius of Sidley Park living out in a hermit's hut. You don't know that. Oh, but I do, I do. Somewhere there will be something, if only I can find it. Now, notice how different Hannah's attitude towards knowledge and research is than Bernard's was. He, as she said, just ignored everything that didn't fit. He found all these little pieces of evidence that he could put together and string together that would make a theory, but didn't want to hear anything that didn't. Uh, And Hannah, she has a very strong conviction that she's on the right track, and uh, we we suspect that she probably is, but she has to have actual proof. It can't just be her gut feeling or it would make a nice story. Uh, She says there has to be something that will prove it. That's what she needs. Again, Bernard is willing to kind of cut corners and just, you know, take the pieces of evidence that he likes and ignore the ones that he doesn't. Now, the play has been leading us to suspect that there was a duel, but it was not Byron who killed Chatter. It was Septimus. Uh, And Septimus actually is a kind of a Byronic figure in the story. Uh, So when we get to scene six, we return to the the 1800s time frame. We hear uh, it begins with a distant pistol shot. Remember, there was supposed to be a duel between uh, Septimus and Mr. Chatter. So he comes in, we hear a a gunshot outside, and Septimus comes in at the top of 27 saying, What a bracing experience! Uh, but then he brings out a, a, a rabbit that he killed, and they're going to have a use it to make a rabbit pie for Miss Thomasina because she likes that. Uh, but the the uh, butler Jellyby tells him that uh, Captain Bryce's carriage has left, and with Mister and Missus Chatter also gone. Yes, sir. And Lord Byron's horse was brought round at four o'clock. Lord Byron too. So every everyone is left. Uh, and he, he gets out of, uh, he asks, Septimus asks him, what has occurred? The servants are told nothing, sir. Come, come. Does a half guinea buy nothing any more? <sighs> Her ladyship encountered Mrs. Chatter during the night. Where? On the threshold of Lord Byron's room. Ah, which one was leaving and which, and, uh, which entering? Mrs. Chatter was leaving Lord Byron's room. And where was Mr. Chatter? Mr. Chatter and Captain Bryce were drinking cherry brandy. Uh, so, <laughs> this is uh, Lord Byron had, you know, Mrs. Chatter in his room, and Lady Croom, the lady of the house, was coming to his room, uh, presumably at his invitation. Uh, the two of them met. Uh, lady Croom didn't like that, and so she got everybody to leave. Uh, so then we get Lady Croom, who comes in and speaks to um, uh, Septimus. And it says, all this to shoot a hare, a rabbit. Now, throughout this play, there are references to turtles 
and rabbits to tortoises and hares. Uh, and though it never mentions it, the Aesop fable of the tortoise and the hare is deeply thematically relevant to this play. If you remember the, the story that the, the hare and the rabbit are going to race, and you think the rabbit would have to win, but he is so confident that he takes a nap, and so the tortoise is able to beat him. And of course, the moral of the story is, slow and steady wins the race. Well, that's also a kind of a, a, a moral of this story, that slow and steady wins the race, that eventually time will bring things out. That's the speech that Septimus had when uh, Thomasina was talking about the destruction of the library at Alexandria, that eventually, in time, all of it will be worked out. But in this scene between Lady Croom and Septimus, uh, she's very upset with him, uh, that he had these these two letters, one that was addressed to her, uh, and she says, "What earth? What earthly use is a love letter from beyond the grave? As much surely as from this side of it." The second letter, however, was not addressed to your ladyship. I have a mother's right to open the letter addressed to you by you to my daughter, whether in the event of your life, your death, or your imbecility. What do you mean by writing to her of rice pudding when she had just suffered a shock of violent death in our midst? Whose death? Yours, you wretch. Oh, yes, I see. So he wrote her talking about her theory about you can't stir the pudding backwards. Um, and uh, again, again and again in this play, this conflict between the, the knowledge, mathematical or scientific knowledge, and personal and human understanding. And Lady Croom is very right. What are you doing talking about these great scientific things when, when if she read the letter, you would be dead and she would have the emotional shock of that? Um, and trying to reconcile those things is in, in all kinds of ways is one of the things that this play is doing. And of course, Lady Croom says that uh, she, this, this duel between uh, Septimus and Chatter she says, I wish it had passed uneventfully with you and Mr. Chatter shooting each other with the decorum due to a civilized house. <laughs> it's kind of hilarious. Yes. Why couldn't you have just shot each other like civilized people? Uh, why did we have to have all of the, these bedroom shenanigans? Uh, I have to say that I think Lady Croom reminds me quite a lot of Lady Bracknell in The Importance of Being Earnest, and I suspect that that is, is deliberate. And there's another letter in the scene one that Lord Byron has left for Septimus. And what Septimus does with it, because Lady Crome doesn't really approve of Lord Byron at the moment, she's quite put out with him for obvious reasons, he takes the letter and starts and burns it. And he says, now there's a thing, a letter from Lord Byron, never to be read by a living soul. And so there it is, that platonic letter that explains everything. It would have explained exactly the opposite of what Bernard wanted it to, but there it is. Notice also how that, that chimes with the, the motif that we have of the Library of Alexandria, the great fire where all of the books were burned. Remember, too, that we found out that the, the hermit of Sidley Park, all of those cabalistic proofs that he wrote of the end of the world, were put in a bonfire and burned. Things that are burned and lost. Uh, it's a repeated theme throughout the play. And, and, of course, one of the things that Lady Croom is upset with Septimus about is that he was caught in carnal embrace 
with Mrs. Chatter. And look at the end of the scene of his his thoughts on that. My lady, I was alone with my thoughts in the gazebo when Mrs. Chatter ran me to ground, and I, being in such a passion, in an agony of unrelieved desire, oh, I thought in my madness that the Chatter, with her skirts over her head, would give me the momentary illusion of the happiness to which I dared not put a face. I do not know when I have received a more unusual compliment, Mr. Hodge. I hope that I am more than a match for Mrs. Chatter with her head in a bucket. Did she wear drawers? She does. Yes, I've heard that drawers are being worn now. It is unnatural for women to be got up like jockeys. I cannot approve. I know nothing of Pericles or the Athenian philosophers. I can spare them an hour in my sitting room when I have bathed. Seven o'clock. Bring a book. So she's inviting him to her room. So, uh, and note that as as always, actually in this play, Thomasina was right uh, that Septimus is in love with Lady Croom, and also everything that happens in this scene explains what the 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 characters in the present in the modern day setting are trying to figure out but it's done in a way that they could never know it the 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 crucial pieces of information the crucial letters have been burned and are lost to history uh, so only we in the audience understand how it all played out now the seventh and final scene of the play uh, begins in the present day with Valentine and Chloe. Uh, Chloe is reading the paper and seeing the, the write-up of, of Bernard's article, Even in Arcadia, Sex, Literature, and Death at Sidley Park. Uh, Byron fought a fatal duel, Don says. Valentine, do you think I'm the first person to think of this? No. I haven't said yet. Uh, now, this should remind us, this is almost exactly word for word the exchange that Thomasina and and Septimus had, where she had a thought and he said, no, you, you're not the first one to think of it. But this one goes a little bit differently. The future is all programmed like a computer. That's a proper theory, isn't it? The deterministic universe? Yes. Right. Because everything, including us, is just a lot of atoms bouncing off each other like billiard balls. Yes, there was someone, I forget his name, 1820s, who pointed out that from Newton's laws you could predict everything to come. I mean, you need a computer as big as the universe, but the formula would exist. Now that, so far, is exactly what Thomasina was thinking in different terms. But it doesn't work, does it? No, it turns out the maths is different. No, it's all because of sex. Really? That's what I think. The universe is deterministic, all right, just like Newton said. I mean, it's trying to be. But the only thing going wrong is people fancying people who aren't supposed to be in that part of the plan. Ah, the attraction that Newton left out, all the way back to the apple in the garden. Yes, yes, I think you're the first person to think of this. Now, again, that's a, a very interesting... Now, now it is a kind of a... Not to dignify it with the name of theory is, is probably too much, but it's thematically very spot-on what Chloe is saying. This deterministic universe gets messed up because of, as Valentine says, the attraction that Newton left out, sexual attraction, uh, the, the apple 
in the Garden of Eden that comes in again. Uh, that there's this deterministic universe that Newton had uh, doesn't explain the human heart. Look at this conversation between Hannah and Valentine. Uh, Valentine is thinking about how in the in the afterlife, uh, Byron and uh, Bernard will have to confront each other. That afterlife would be a mixed blessing. Ah, Bernard Nightingale, I don't believe you know, Lord Byron. It must be heaven up there. You can't believe in an afterlife, Valentine. Oh, you're going to disappoint me at last. Am I? Why? Science and religion. No, no, been there, done that, boring. Oh, Hannah, fiancé, have pity. Can't we have a trial marriage and I'll call it off in the morning? I don't know when I've ever received a more unusual proposal. Have you had many? That would be telling. Uh, now, notice uh, you know, a couple of things here. Uh, first of all, the the echo of what Lady Croom said in the previous scene, I don't know when I've see received a more unusual compliment. Uh, there are more and more of these echoes as the play goes on. And Hannah tries to console Valentine uh, about the difficulties he's having with his scientific project about the, the grouse. And she says, you mustn't give up. This is the bottom of 2932. Why? Didn't you agree with Bernard? Oh, that. It's all trivial. Your grouse, my hermit, Bernard's Byron. Comparing what we're looking for misses the point. It's wanting to know that makes us matter. Otherwise, we're going out, out the way we came in. That's why you can't believe in the afterlife, Valentine. Believe in the after, by all means, but not the life. Believe in God, the soul, the spirit, the infinite. Believe in angels, if you like, but not in the great celestial get-together for an exchange of views. If the answers are in the back of the book, I can wait, but what a drag. Better to struggle on, knowing that failure is final. Now, this is, I think, in some ways, the one of the thematic keys of the whole play. This idea, it's wanting to know that makes us matter. And also the rejection of the afterlife. As she says, I don't want the answers to be in the back of the book. Sometimes we, we, will, try, we will want to know the answers, but we can't. And says she, would, she prefers that, to struggle on knowing that failure is final that it's irrevocable, that you can't unstir the pudding. And, and then she looks at his computer and sees this beautiful image, and he calls it the coverly set. The coverly set, my goodness, Valentine. Lend me a finger. He takes her finger and presses one of the computer buttons several times. See? In an ocean of ashes, islands of order. Patterns making themselves out of nothing. Now, if you want to get an idea of what this would look like, uh, Google iterated algorithm and look at some of the images of these kinds of, of chaos theory patterns that they, they show. They really are very beautiful. Uh, and it's the, this is the kind of math that uh, Thomasina was thinking of, but of course didn't have the computing power to complete. Uh, but with a computer, a modern-day computer, you just press a button a few times and it iterates the algorithm and gives you, shows you what the pattern looks like. And in fact, this is Thomasina's equation. Valentine has just put it through a computer and shown that it actually was accurate. And 
but again, Valentine can't believe that she actually discovered this, you know, in, in, eight, in 1810. He says, for one, well, for one thing, she'd be famous. No, she wouldn't. She was dead before she had time to be famous. She died? Burned to death. Oh, the girl who died in the fire the night before her 17th birthday. Now, this should come as a real shock to the audience. The idea that Thomasina, this vibrant girl that we've been seeing, will die before she's 17. And then another remarkable moment in this play happens. Enter Lord Augustus, 15 years old, wearing clothes of 1812. Now, there's a, a costume ball, so they're all wearing period costumes uh, of, the, of the period that we've seen in the other half of the play, and it's the same actor playing Lord Augustus who has been playing Gus in the present. And in fact, before this, we saw uh, Gus getting dressed up in his costume. So now, here suddenly, for a moment, we think that it's Gus, but we see him chasing Thomasina, and then suddenly... Now the stage is not alternating scene by scene, past and present. Now the past has literally burst onto the stage with the present. And from here on out, they're going to be uh, intertwined, uh, going back and forth. As this part of the play can be confusing to read. You have to really picture what it, it's doing. But uh, Stoppard is showing us how, how, how intertwined these two parts of the story are. And we see here, we've just had Valentine show the uh, the coverly set and what he's doing it with modern technology. And here we see Thomasina uh, doing what she calls her rabbit equations. He says, I saw no resemblance to a rabbit. It eats its own progeny. Uh, again, that's an that iterated algorithm. And notice too, a rabbit, the tortoise and the hare again. And then in the present, we get Valentine describing the second law of thermodynamics to Hannah. It says, your tea gets cold by itself. It doesn't get hot by itself. Do you think that's odd? That's another question that comes up a lot in this play. Do you think that's odd? No. Well, it is odd. Heat goes to cold. It's a one-way street. Your tea will end up at room temperature. What's happening to your tea is happening to everything everywhere the sun, and the stars. It'll take a while, but we're all going to end up at room temperature. So that's the idea of entropy, that, every again, everything is going to eventually end up at room temperature. Uh, we're, we're fighting a losing battle against death, essentially. But again, Valentine can't believe that Thomasina really grasped all of this at the time, uh, he says, because there's an order things can't happen in. You can't open a door till there's a house. I thought that's what genius was, only for lunatics and poets. I had a dream which was not all dream. The bright sun was extinguished, and the stars did wander darkling in the eternal space, rayless and pathless, and the icy earth swung blind and blackening in the moonless air. Your own? Byron. And of course, in this context, Byron is describing the, the kind of the heat death of the universe, the, the law of entropy and the second law of thermodynamics that Valentine has been talking about. Uh, and again, 
we get this wonderful connection between the literary, the human, and the personal, and the scientific and the mathematical. Now, at the bottom of the uh, page, we get a, a, another wonderful revelation. Uh, Augustus is not does not like Lord Byron. He says, Lord Byron, he claimed my hair, although my shot was the earlier. He said, I missed by a hair's breadth. His conversation was very facetious. But I think Lord Byron will not marry you, Tom, for he was only only lame and not blind. So here's a younger brother teasing his older sister. But that was the whole pin that Bernard had to prove that Lord Byron was there, that he shot a hare. Well, again, again, the tortoise and the hare. But it actually turns out that he didn't, that that was a lie, that it was Augustus who shot the hare, but Byron just took credit for it. Uh, and so the the fact that he was there is only known because of something that wasn't true that was in the game book. And there, there are several little motifs that run through this. Um, Thomasina is, is begging Septimus to teach her how to waltz. And he also gives her a, a scientific essay about the propagation of heat in a solid body. Uh, but it, 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 that equation has discovered heresy, a natural contradiction of Sir Isaac Newton. This is the top of 2937. Oh, he contradicts determinism? No. Well, perhaps. He shows that the atoms do not go according to Newton. Of course, that interests her very much. She's been very skeptical about Newtonian, uh, the Newtonian explanation of the universe and wanted something better. Then we get another motif, that piano playing in the next room. Um, and Thomasina hears the, the music forehanded now. Mama is in love with the Count. Her, her, her mama gets around now. She's having apparently an affair with the, the, the count who's playing the music. The other sound off stage is the regular thumping of this steam engine, uh, this heat engine, uh, which, which again is thematically relevant. All of this stuff is. Uh, remember that uh, Valentine has used the, the metaphor of a tune played by a, a the other room by a piano and you have to kind of pick out the music is the way he's looking for the pattern of his grouse and we'll see that it's this st this heat engine that uh, uh, the bodies in heat which again has a sexual connotation uh, is what Thomasina is looking at as a contradiction to Newton's theories and then in the present we have Hannah who discovers another important uh, a piece of historical information, bottom of 2938. Uh, For the widow's dowry of dahlias, I can almost forgive my brother's marriage. We must be thankful the monkey bit the husband. Well, remember the other chatter, the, the botanist who discovered the dwarf dahlia who was killed by being bit by a monkey? Well, it turns out that that was the same chatter who uh, uh, Bernard thought was killed in the duel. And it's almost dizzying how all of the, the different threads uh, thematically and plot-wise come back together in this final scene. Uh, look at, uh, uh, for example, uh, 2940. Lady Croom looks out the door, out the window, and asks the, the landscape architect Noakes, What is that cowshed? The hermitage, my lady? It is a cowshed. Madam, 
It is, I assure you, a very habitable cottage, a properly founded and drained, two rooms and a closet under a slate roof and a stone chimney. And who is to live in it? Why, the hermit. Where is he? Madam, you surely not, not supply hermitage without a hermit. I indeed, madam. Come, come, Mr. Noakes. If I am promised a, f a, f a fountain, I expect it to come with water. What hermits do you have? Uh, I have no hermits, my lady. Not one? I am speechless. I am not sure a hermit can be found. Uh, one could advertise. Advertise? In the newspapers. But surely a hermit who takes a, a newspaper is not a hermit in whom one can have complete confidence. Uh, I do not know what to suggest, my lady. Now this, on top of being very funny, is reminding us of the the, the hermit and the speculation that Hannah has made that it is Septimus himself who will become the hermit of Sidley Park. And then in the, the middle of 2941, Thomasina uh, talks about this, this article that she's read, this scientific article, and it proves that Newton's equations go forwards and backwards. They do not care which way, but the heat equation cares very much. It only goes one way. That is the reason Mr. Noakes's engine cannot give the power to drive Mr. Noakes's engine. Everybody knows that, Septimus says. Yes, Septimus, they know it about engines. Uh, but again, she sees, she's an incredibly intelligent person. She sees what the implications of that are in a way that the uh, that science and math wouldn't catch on to for over a century. But, of course, the irony is that though she knows it, it will not be known that she knows it. It will not be discovered until later. And in the, the reverse irony is about Bernard's theory about the past, which turns out to be very clearly disproved in the present. Uh, he, he's been done in by a dahlia. Uh, look at the, the, the bottom of uh, 2942 as Hannah explains what her, her research has turned up. It means that Ezra Chatter of the Sidley Park con connection is the same Chatter who described a dwarf dahlia in Martinique in 1810 and died there of a monkey bite. Ezra wasn't a botanist, he was a poet. He was not much of either, but he was both. And so Hannah tells Bernard that she's going to reveal this with a, in a letter to the Times. Uh, she says, uh, dignified congratulations to a colleague in the language of scholars. Um, and he says, oh, eat shit, you mean? He says, think of it as a breakthrough in Dahlia studies. Uh, so Bernard gets his comeuppance, his overconfidence and his ability to know things is uh, uncovered by, again, the more slow and steady research that Hannah is doing. And there again, the tortoise and the hare comes into the story. Now, we get a, a scene change. It becomes the, the stage darkens. It's night. And we have Septimus with an oil lamp, Thomasina in her nightgown, barefoot, holding a candlestick. This is the middle of 2944. My lady, what is it? Septimus, shush. She closes the door quietly. Now is our chance. For what, dear God? Here's another misunderstanding. He thinks she's making an indecent proposal. But she, as she says, just wants to learn how to uh, uh, do, uh, do not act the innocent. Tomorrow I will be seventeen. There, she kisses him. Dear Christ, now you must show me. You are paid in advance. 
Oh, she just wants to learn to waltz. She says, uh, the count plays for us. It is God-given. I cannot be 17 and not waltz. So, now remember, we know that she dies on the night of her 17th birthday, that this is her last night. Uh, and here she is. And, and so it's very ironic, her holding the candle. And one and says, I can't uh, be 17 and not waltz. And Septimus has her math primer that she wrote in, remember, about the, the margin being too narrow to explain it. Uh, she had this new wonderful geometry. And she says at the top of 2945 that it was a joke. It will make me mad, as you promised. Um, and, of course, it will. There's There's so many levels of irony coming in here because of what we as an audience know. Uh, our knowledge of this gives us gives an extra poignancy to so many of the things going on here. And so we look at this diagram that uh, Thomasina has made, and the characters in the present day, Hannah and Valentine, look at it. As the stage direction says, doubled by time, this diagram of heat exchange. And Valentine is explaining all of this. He says, you can't run the film backwards. Heat was the first thing which didn't work that way, not like Newton. A film of a pendulum or a ball falling through the air back, uh, backwards, it looks the same. Uh, the top of 2946. Uh, you'd uh, but with heat, friction, a ball breaking a window, uh, it won't work backwards. And she saw why. You can put back the bits of glass... But you can't collect up the heat of the smash. It's gone. And again, this is why you can't unstir your uh, your pudding. Uh, it's why the steam engine uh, it can't power itself. Uh, it's, it's entropy. It's uh, the second law of thermodynamics. And it's something that uh, Thomasina saw, and now Valentine realizes that she saw uh, you know, a century before anyone else did. And then in this moment between Thomasina and Septimus, look at the stage directions near the bottom of 2946. Septimus, holding Thomasina, kisses her on the mouth. The waltz lesson pauses. She looks at him. He kisses her again in earnest. She puts her arms around him. Septimus! Septimus hushes her. They start to dance again with the slight awkwardness of a lesson. And then Chloe comes in, who's upset with her mother, uh, that uh, uh, her, their mother caught them in the, in the cottage. And that cottage is the hermitage, which was the gazebo. So as the story began with the, somebody being caught in carnal embrace in the gazebo, it ends with a, with a pair being caught in carnal embrace in the hermitage. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And look at as Bernard leaves, he says to Hannah, I look forward to The Genius of the Place, the new book she's going to write about the hermit. I hope you find your hermit. I think out front is safest. He opens the door cautiously and looks out. Actually, I've got a good idea of who he was, but I can't prove it. With a carefree, expansive gesture, publish. Of course, that's what he did and got in such big trouble. Uh, then we, uh, we again, on, you have to remember... All, while all of this is happening, we have Septimus and Thomasina are also on the stage dancing. These two sets of characters in different times are not aware of each other on the stage. Um, it says, am I waltzing? 
Yes, my lady. Uh, and then Gus appears in the doorway. It takes us a moment to realize that he is not Lord Augustus. So again, that wonderful collision of these two characters uh, happens again. We see the, who we think it's Lord Augustus who's coming in and discovering Thomasina uh, waltzing with Septimus. But it's actually Gus in the present day coming to Hannah. And then the dialogue between Septimus and Thomasina. Septimus says, take your essay. I give it an alpha in blind faith. He doesn't understand. She's gone way beyond him. And he says, be careful with the flame. Again, wonderfully, poignantly ironic. He says, I will wait for you to come. I cannot. You may. I may not. You must. I will not. She puts the candlestick and the essay on the table. Then I will not go. Once more, for my birthday. And so they start waltzing. And there's something amazingly poignant about this because we know that she's going to her death, that like the Library of Alexandria, this irreplaceable treasure is going to be burned and lost, uh, like so many things have been. Uh, so it's, it's this very, it's almost tragic moment uh, this this last moment of happiness and the last moment of her life. And then that's paralleled in the present day with the exchange between Hannah and Gus. And again, we have these two, uh, two couples, uh, older and younger, uh, separated by time, uh, uh, young geniuses, Gus and, and uh, uh, Thomasina, who have crushes on these older uh, educators, Hannah and Septimus. Uh, so again, it's a kind of a beautifully parallel moment. But what Gus is giving to Hannah is a drawing that Thomasina made of, of Septimus, Septimus with Plautus. Now you put that together with what she knows that the Sidley Hermit had a tortoise named Plautus, and that gives her the proof she needs. He says, and Hannah says, I was looking for that. Thank you. Gus nods several times. Then, rather awkwardly, he bows to her, a regency bow, an invitation to dance. Oh dear, I don't really... After a moment's hesitation, she gets up and they hold each other, keeping a de de decorous distance between them and start to dance rather awkwardly. Septimus and Thomasina continue to dance fluently to the piano. So there you have, again, these two couples waltzing in two separate times, uh, a, a moment of knowledge gained, a moment of life and knowledge lost. Uh, the Again, the, the scientific and the personal, uh, all of that kind of woven together in a, a wonderful moment here at the end of the play. And the play is, at least to me, and I think to many people, both very intellectually and very emotionally satisfying. Uh, it, it, there's something about the, the, the puzzle nature of it that kind of appeals to the intellect. But it also, at the end, has, again, this very deeply emotional moment, this, this tragic loss of Thomasina, uh, and this uh, also very touching in its different, very different way crush that Gus has on on Hannah, 
And that's the reason that she gets the information, not because of intelligence or because of science or because of reason, but because of his emotions, of his feelings for her. And that's all expressed in this beautiful double waltz that ends the play. Well, I, as I've mentioned before, I wanted to end this class with fairly contemporary works of literature that show you that there is still very great literature being written even today. And I think this play is, is, uh, is certainly proof of that. So that ends our, our class, our discussion of British literature from the Romantics to the present day. I hope you have genuinely enjoyed at least some of the works that we've read and gotten something out of them. I've certainly enjoyed being able to share my insights on them with you. Uh, now, I will have one more brief talk about the format of the final exam, uh, but that's it for our discussions of literature this semester, and I thank you very much for your attention.